Audi. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Adventurer and ultra runner Jamie Madison has run hundreds of miles through vast deserts, lived with a nomad in Central Asia, raced on horseback with a crazy herder on the remote old postal roads in Kazakhstan, pulled a camel through a hundred miles of desert in Uzbekistan and lived with eagle hunters in Mongolia with fascinating stories about how expeditions can challenge and change you and have a surprising mental and physical lasting effect. It's Jamie Madison on The Big Travel Podcast. You came to my attention because you you have a lovely little film entered into the Four Seasons Film Festival. Tell us a little bit about that. The film is called All That's There and it documents a 70-mile ultramarathon that I did across the Saryasek Atharau Desert in Central Asia, in Kazakhstan, which is probably the first crossing of that desert on foot. And it will be screening at the Four Seasons Film Festival at the BFI Film Forever, the Wednesday 20th of March, so not too far away. It's the world premiere right here. Yes, yes it is. No one else has seen it <laughs> yet. Oh, that sounds brilliant. And, oh God, where should we start then? Should we start with that journey? Should we start with how you got into exploring in the first place? Where would you like to start? Let's start with how I got into exploring in the first place. It's a story that spans this, the entirety of my life, as it were. I grew up reading lots of mountaineering literature. My dad was a very, uh, is still a very keen hill walker. Uh, and I grew up reading about Joe Tasker, Pete Boardman, uh, Joe Simpson, all this, or Chris Boddington, all these famous mountaineers who had done some really impressive ascents. And I thought, oh, that's what I want to be. That's what I want to do. And I went to university. I immediately joined the mountaineering club. I was climbing all the time. I hardly studied because I just spent all the time going up into the, into the hills in the Brecon Beacons and going to the crags and whatnot. And then even when people couldn't come with me, I was still going off by myself, scouting new routes, trying to climb them cleaning them up all this sort of stuff so my background was very much rock climbing and as soon as I finished university I got a stringer role so a few articles here and there for a rock climbing magazine and also helped do some of their stuff on their website I really love that and I started to get this passion to right now I'm going to start doing the big expeditions and my friend a longtime friend called Matthew Traver who actually made the film All That's There invited me on an expedition to Kyrgyzstan in uh, 2010 and I went along and it was amazing I was recording and writing it all up for my publication for Climber magazine 
And I just fell in love with Kyrgyzstan and Central Asia, and it was so so interesting. They'd just gone through a, a revolution. There'd been a, lots of dicey stuff going down in the city of Osh in the south, and it felt like a place that tourism didn't quite exist yet. And it just seems so interesting because my other passion is sort of Russian Soviet history, so. That was always an area I wanted to explore anyway. Long story short, I decided that actually what I want to do is come back to this region and I want to do a big expedition there. And that sparked off the journey of doing expeditions in Central Asia. And I've done whew, about nine different little trips, some small, some quite large, across the various countries that um, make up Central Asia. And this is interesting because you're living this sort of dual life. You work in the city in marketing in finance and um, you're sitting here very smart you know you're going you're going back to your city job and everything how have you managed to balance those two worlds they must be very different yeah they are quite different it's really interesting uh, to begin with when i was younger i did quite large expeditions myself and matt traver spent six months going around central asia we spent two months on horseback a month and a half living with a nomad like a herder in tajikistan did some sort of smaller runs across the desert in uzbekistan very long expansive trips which were very very difficult mentally to come back from it was it was quite a lot of work once you were actually back so by the time you'd sort of recovered from that it was like eight or nine months circumstance brought me to london and set me on a path i i, I felt like i couldn't really be taking nine months out, a out at a time at any point as i grew older so i looked for a format that would satisfy my need for adventure and expedition and doing things that i thought no one had potentially done before with a few quid. yeah yeah <laughs> that age I, I, was, yeah, I was tired wearing t-shirts that i'd owned from like for eight years or so and i didn't want to be just so stoic and not have anything i wanted to actually have a little bit of enjoyment in my life which is one of the difficulties when you get into adventure full-time and you start really really wanting to do expeditions and trips you become quite what's the word Ma masochistic like you you kind of forget about the joys and pleasure of life except for when you're on a trip mm -hmm. so i wanted to balance that more i wanted to have a little bit more just relax a little bit more so i looked for a format of adventure that i could do be really intense still satisfy that need to explore and see the remote regions of the world with actually being inverted commas normal person uh, and that's when i hit upon ultra running as a, as an idea you can cross quite large expanses of territory that people may have never gone through or very infrequently gone through do it within a week and then be back at your desk for monday morning what is ultra running is it just a very very long run i mean there are ultra marathoners and ultra runners and who who do it much better than i do and are purists and i'm sure that they might disagree with me but yeah in essence i i feel like it's running for a long time technically i think anything that's over a marathon even if you did uh, half a mile over a marathon would be a ultra run but some people go for hundreds and hundreds of miles and how long do you go for it the longest I've done in one continuous go is 70 miles, which is actually very modest for an ultra runner. It sounds like a lot of running to me. It, it really sounds, sounds like, like it, yeah, much. it was. Um, I was quite slow. It was across sort of deserty conditions. There was lots of ups and downs of sand dunes. This was in my latest Sarasek Atarau desert crossing, and it took me quite a long time. By the time I'd done it, it was like 30 hours. Great people can do 100 miles in under 24 hours. It's Let's look at that in more detail, though. So you're running through sand. That's pretty hard. What What is it like? you know what are you seeing there's two 
main expeditions that I've done, uh, where I've done ultra marathon running. The one that we've been talking about is the Sarasek Ultra, but before that I did eight marathons in eight days across a place called the Betpak Dala. And the Betpak Dala is even more remote than Sarasek Atarau. It's very remote, people don't want to go in there. Um, where is it? It's in Kazakhstan. Both of these are in Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is the size of Western Europe and it's got three or four sizable deserts that people have never heard of before. The Betpak Dala means the unlucky step or the unlucky desert or the desert of misfortune. And <laughs> it's a great start. Yeah, I know. It's about the size of Scotland. And what you see on that is exactly the same thing that you see. You'll see everything in the first five miles that you'll see for the rest 250 miles. It was like one of those Roadrunner cartoons where the background just cycles around again. Or um, the other way I compared it to was like, uh, it's almost like a chessboard or something. You, oh, no, a painting. That was what I compared it to. You set off and you, you start at the beginning of the painting and the perspective is all skewy and you finally get to the horizon two hours later that you saw and you get there, you look over the little ridge and it's exactly the same thing as where you've come from. And you do that on and on and on and on again until, well, until you get to the other side. Is it desert? Is it dunes? The Betpadala was more scrubland. It wasn't quite Duny. The Sarasek Atarau Desert has dunes at the start and the end, closer to the rivers, and then in the middle it's kind of this endless flat. What, it, mentally, what does that take to keep you going if there's not even like a, you know, a different view around the corner to entertain you? I found it incredibly hard mentally It was to run those distances in that terrain. To cope with that sort of distance and to cope with that sort of lack of stimulation, I would. it was all about the watch. It was all about okay, I would break it down into four hour segments, which are then, so you have a four hour block broken down into hour blocks within that. Every hour you could stop and have a refill. You'd, you would have refills and water refills on the way, but those are the, uh, the hour was like your 10 minute break. And then the four hour was like your half an hour break. And so you would just focus on the watch, focus on the timing until you got to that point that you'd have a break and then you'd reset and then you'd redo it. And you would have that by having that regimented approach to time. You didn't have to make, have to worry about the next six days. You just had to worry about the next <laughs> hour or the next 40 minutes until it got to the hour point. Physically, that must really take it out for you as well. Yeah, physically, those sort of journeys really did exhaust me. I haven't run since the Sarasek Atarau, well, which was like a year and a half ago. You mean not even for a bus or anything? Uh, no, maybe for a bus. I think the most I've managed is about two miles around the track or something. I've just kind of like, it just, it just was so exhausting for me. I'm, yeah, it was not... I have a very full-on job. No, I'm also married. Um, I I don't have bags and bags of time to to train to the sufficient level that I perhaps should have. So it was a lot of kind of gritting through it. And afterwards, you feel exhausted when you first finish, but afterwards, it's so much harder. You just feel. I I felt low for like months afterwards, not wanting to do any exercise. Really draining. For um, months, wow. Yeah. That was a significant effect. Yeah, it's. Um, what was it like when, when you crossed the finishing line? How did that feel? It's great because when you're crossing these sort of deserts, they're usually framed by two rivers, one at the start and one at the end, and then in the middle is is the empty expanse. So with the Sarasek Atarau Desert that's shown in the film, all that's there, it, you finish on a river. And you're aching, I can barely move at this point. I'm doing like 16 minute miles, which are like really, really slow. You know, people can do that so easily. And every single bit of me is aching, but you kind of run down this little hill and then there's this river there and it spurs you on and you go down there and I ran in and I just sat down in the water <laughs> and like, I'm just like, oh. It was a really good feeling 
but it can also be a bit anticlimactic. Uh, you spend all your time imagining what the end goal will be, and then you get there, and it's you know it's just a river. You're just you just it's just a bit of territory <laughs> that looks like any other bit of territory. So you kind of feel like, oh, was that it? Was that what I did? You know, that was a lot of work for something. You've kind of conquered an idea of something, perhaps in your own mind. You may have like accomplished a concept that you put out to achieve, but when you get to the end, you realise that it's just something that you've put forward. And really the conquest or the idea or the success comes from how you recognise and appreciate that, what you've just done. Because you can very easily, and when I, a lot of my earlier expeditions, I would do a trip and I would do something and I would set out to do it. And I'd get to the end and then I'd be very hard on myself and I'd be like, oh yeah, but I didn't do this, this didn't happen. I think we cheated there because, you know, I hopped in the car for two minutes or something like, or whatever the expedition was, like, oh, this is the reasons why it wasn't actually as pure as I thought it would be. And as I grew older and I started to do this more, I recognised that setting these rules, it, it only matters to you. It's, it's never going to matter. The trip is never going to matter as much to anybody else as it does to you. So how you look at it and how you look on your achievements is really defines how they should be, def how they should be perceived and how, what you think about it. And if you go through all that and you don't enjoy it and you don't think you've done it well, then what was it all for? So I've learned as I got a bit older to sort of enjoy the experience a little the bit more. Literally as well. enjoy the journey. Yeah, enjoy the... Yeah, enjoy the journey, even if the journey is quite painful. It sounds very painful. You mentioned spending two months on horseback crossing. Where were you crossing? Again, that was Kazakhstan. I've done quite a few trips you like in Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan right? Yeah, Kazakhstan. I've never been, so tell me about it. Kazakhstan is a beautiful place. Uh, I've been back three or four times now. You have the deserts uh, in the west. You have, again, out in the, the west, you have these like sort of almost like Nevada territory or Utah, uh, wherever the big monument valley is. And then to the north, you have kind of Greenland and steppe. And uh, again, the east as well, you've got steppe. When I did my first expedition in 2010 to Kyrgyzstan, I read a book called the Mountains of Heaven, which talked about this Tian Shan Mountains, which are on the sort of south-easterly edge of Kazakhstan. And an old British Anglo-Irish explorer, actually, called Sir Charles Howard Berry, um, had in 1913 ridden across that territory down the old postal roads to get and see the area and to go, I think it was to go hunting in the, in the mountains. And it just seemed like a kind of quirky British adventure. I kind of liked the idea of it. So myself and my friend Matthew Traver made this plan that in 2013, 100 years to the day, we would go down the same post roads on horseback and see how the territory had changed in the 100 years since. We both didn't know how to ride horses when we <laughs> when we set that plan out. And we spent a bit of time learning, but really in essence, we just turned up to the north of Kazakhstan in sort of May, June time, 2013, went round a few farms, bought three horses and pointed them south and rode them south for 67 days or so the whole expedition was before we got to the outskirts of Almaty, uh, which is Kazakhstan's sort of second capital. Wow, that's um, incredible. Where were you sleeping? Were you camping or...? Yeah, we were camping. We were um, we were camping in tents. Well, we were camping in one quite open tent. It was like almost like a teepee, and we hadn't brought any bug spray with us. And we didn't quite realise just how buggy it would be. So we spent yeah two months getting bitten and fighting off sort of like 
ticks and stuff so it was it was quite that was quite uncomfortable one as well sounds like an incredible adventure what was the most standout occasion on that trip the most standout occasion on that horse riding trip was definitely it came about a third of the way through and a kazakh herdsman approached us and offered us a place to sleep for the night we were kind of in a quite remote territory and there wasn't much around and he we as part of that he asked us to go see his herd and help him like herd it to the next area or make sure they're all there and count it oh it was a herd of cows but as part of that he was a bit of a gung-ho sort of character and he um he decided to give us a race and I was on a horse uh, that we'd called Totoro after the sort of Studio Ghibli character and Totoro did not like to be beaten at anything uh, so as soon as he saw the other horse gallop he galloped so fast and it's about six or seven o'clock in the evening we're galloping into the setting sun you've got this verdant grassland underneath with like flowers that and it's you're going so fast that the flowers are almost like streaks of like color and i'm racing this traditional herdsman and in the end the horse was so fast it, it beat him uh, so I left him behind and he's still going it's just me and the horse and you've you got can this stop now. <laughs> yeah yeah you can stop don't throw me off do not hit a her, you know like this the ground's not very even he could have just like hit a hit a like a trough and we would have both been off and then it would have been very serious because we're in the middle of nowhere so it was that danger the beauty and the excitement all at the same time with a bit of comp like a splash of competition that was like the most standout moment did you ever feel in danger apart from at that moment it's quite dangerous yeah uh, yeah there was quite a few times that we felt in danger there was situations where we accidentally stayed in a brothel and nearly got beat up. <laughs> like, oh, why? Why are these rooms rented for an hour and then they're not? Not again. Why are these but, ladies being so nice? Yeah, and basically, it was very, very stupid. There were times, yeah, a lot of times where we felt like the running, uh, not the running, the, the the sort of galloping, and could fall off there. There were some lightning storms that came right on top of us. That was in, like the thunder sort of sucks the air from your lungs. Mostly, it was like an underlying sense of worry because we're going through slightly remote areas we can't carry that much equipment and so we didn't really off we often didn't have that much food and so you felt you, you it was just this underlying tension that built and built and built for days at a time and weeks at a time where you didn't have that much food you have the stress of, like managing horses for that period is very very stressful um, especially we, when you're not used to managing horses i mean you obviously must have got used to it pretty quickly but yeah yeah you get you get used to managing horses but it we didn't have support on that expedition the running expeditions i would have a support vehicle with me but with the with the horseback one we had no support so what that meant was we would wake up and we would spend maybe three three and a half hours just getting the animals ready to ride for the day by the time we'd left camp we would ride for maybe seven hours in 40 degree heat in the hot sun worrying about whether where the next water point would be not carrying that much food so you're hungry and then you'd you might have sort of interactions with locals and some people who might want to just cause a bit of mischief or just be a nuisance and then in the heat add that on and then you finally get to camp and then you've got to spend two hours setting up camp again only to repeat it all the next morning day in day out day in day out it became very hard very very hard to, you kind of just shut off from the world and just focus on what you need to do and then unpicking that afterwards once i'd got back and trying to 
sort of come back to normal and be a sort of social creature in amongst other people was actually one of the hardest things I've done. It really changed me. It took a long time to unpick. Did you anticipate it would change you as a person that much? No, I didn't. I didn't at the time. I was very much focused... At the time, I was like, I'm going to be a professional explorer. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make my living out of this. This is a stepping stone to going to Antarctica or going anywhere and doing big trips. I didn't really anticipate the effect it would have on me. And I didn't recognise it at the time, even when I got back. It's only in retrospect with, you know, the hindsight of about seven or eight years looking back and a lot of sort of self-work to figure out, actually, there was a lot of these sort of trips for me do shut you off and coming back from that was was very interesting process uh, and took a lot of sort of self-work so the sort of the after effects of the expedition were almost as hard as the expedition itself it's very interesting i had leveson wood on recently and we spoke about how he finds it very hard to you know he said it's his explorations have paid some very good relationships and luckily you're married but he hasn't married to manage to sort of meet someone and stay with them because he's always off doing other things but i didn't actually think about how the trips would change him and how resilient and how self absorbed i guess you need to become when you're you're just you or, or two of you in a very remote area with nothing but yourselves to rely on yeah and it's you have two aspects to your personality that i think change the first is your your reliance on other people in terms of your physical self-reliance and you you don't want to ask people for help and you don't want to you, you know you don't feel like in work situations that you can be like hey can sorry i just don't get this like you have to you have to be an autonomous unit and you know there are individuals individualistic people in the world and that's there's nothing wrong with that i think the second the, the sort of deeper level that it took you through was because you don't you don't have any interaction. We have, myself and Matt were the only two people that we, we spoke to for six months and we kind of retreated into our own worlds um, because we knew exactly what the other person was gonna say. So you spent a long, long time doing, just being by yourself. We actually, later on in the trip, we had to wait for our visa to come through for Uzbekistan and we were still seven days out from when it was allowed and um, we couldn't afford to stay for a hotel so we just went by a remote river and just did nothing for seven days like nothing we didn't speak to each other we just sort of sat by the river for seven days and wow. did absolutely nothing do you have books or anything we had i like i had one book you sort of eke it out but you get bored of reading after a while so you just kind of like throw some rocks at the river <laughs> you kind of wait for the next time to eat food and then you just keep on sitting there and yeah it's only when you look back and you're like oh my god that was that was strange and your human beings are social creatures and our grasp of reality is based on what other people confirm or not confirm if you if you hear a noise and you look to see if other people react to that noise because otherwise you might have just imagined it when you start going onto these very very isolated self things your breakdown you 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 kind of have a fundamental loosening of the grip of reality back into your own head and so you're just inhabiting the world that you make and so when you try and 
reach out of that world because it's not always a very happy place. Mm -hmm. uh, in a lot, it's very not a happy place because you're just focused on your own insecurities and whatnot. You can't use other people as a means of sort of comfort. And that becomes very, that can become very lonely. So yeah, there is a, there is a fundamental thing, I think, for people who really push themselves to this area, that the reliance on other people and talking to other people and just ha sort of being part of society is, it takes rehabilitation, I think. Okay, I think it definitely imagine. does. I mean, when does that happen these days, like, especially with modern technology, when everyone's got a phone in their hand? You know, when do you, you really don't sit by a river for 24 hours, let alone for seven days, you know, with nothing to do apart from your own yeah mine to drive you mad yeah I, I mean i guess that maybe the closest i wouldn't know i've never been and i couldn't presume to know but maybe military service they that might be and maybe that is maybe i had a much lower version of what they these guys and girls experience i, I don't know but yeah it's it's different like now i do mindfulness i do like meditation and I'm kind of more aware of the present moment back then i wasn't it was more you just chase the thoughts around your own head mm. and it, it's a different sort of different sort of ice isolating awareness that comes with those sort of trips. So tell me about some of your other adventures then. After the horse ride, the next next sort of expedition we did was we went to the east of Tajikistan, which is called the Pamirs. There is a highway that runs through it that um, cyclists love. It's like one of the best places to go for cycling or sort of best expedition places. We just went to the sort of southeast corner, found a nomad, say, hey, can we live with you? We'll pay you like <laughs> $5 a day. Just show us your life. And that's what we did. Again, a lot of just sitting around, not doing very much, waiting for him to do something. We'll go cut the grass. We'll go look at things. He might go like show us what he's hunting. Um, we might go see these ruins. And we just spent, yeah, like a month doing that. And Matt made a film called Portrait of a Ruzbek which premiered a few years ago, which got quite a good reception, actually. It was an interesting trip, that one. After that, I did a 100-mile, seven-day run through Uzbekistan, so it was like a half marathon a day, um, which is not very much, but <laughs> I'd, I'd come off the back of, or we'd both come off the back of four or five months of not eating properly. <laughs> so, and we've what been... do you mean, like just being unhealthy? No, as in, because we did this all in one trip, right, you I see. So we'd done the horse ride, then we went to this, and then we're like, well, we've done something in Kazakhstan, we've, we did something in Kyrgyzstan previously, we've done something in Tajikistan now, so let's go do something in Uzbekistan, and, you know, just spend every last penny that we ever had in savings. So then we went into this run. Oh, I did the run, Matt walked, we also had a camel, and trying to <laughs> match the camel with the walking pace, with the running pace, it was, it was just a nightmare. It was just, it was a small, slightly crazy trip, or quite a crazy expedition to finish it off. I don't uh, know, I want to ask about the camel, I want to ask what the nomads thought when you turned up and said, could I live with you for a month? I mean, what did the nomad respond? Yeah, the nomad, yeah, he was like, yeah, okay, come on in. Like, cause he obviously, I, a way of getting income they did think we were slightly strange i have to say it was it was hard to communicate with them as well we knew i know a bit of russian then he knew a bit of russian i respect knew a bit of russian but he was a sort of wheeler dealer chap he'd always got a sort of scheme or plot on the go so he was always taking us around people around people's houses showing us off show, kind of thing he was a real cheeky sort of person as well he, he took us to see some 
family or some friends up in a sort of remote valley in like a car. And then after we'd done the visit, he drove us back down, or his friend drove us back down rather, and he stopped by these signs that we'd missed on the way past. And he's like, hey, look at this, ha ha ha, radioactive zone, keep ah. out because it used to be an old uranium mine from the Soviet Union. And now people just live there and they kind of ignore the signs. But he didn't think to tell us that until after he'd done it. It was that sort of like, ha-ha, we've got you sort of thing. Isn't it funny? And you're like, ah, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Do you ever keep in touch with him? Is there, are there ways of keeping in touch with him? Yeah, I mean, look, he, he tried to, yeah, he, he WhatsApped me like a, oh, couple, did he? Yeah, a couple of years ago. He got my phone. I'm not sure he got my phone number, actually. Oh, I think he got it off Matt for some reason. But he was a bit, he was a bit naughty. He was trying to say about his, his daughter needed surgery or something. And could you, could we help out? And we got a few people in, a few friends in Kazakhstan who sort of, oh, actually Kyrgyzstan. He was in Kyrgyzstan at the time. Uh, a few friends in Kyrgyzstan who sort of looked into it in a bit more detail. And he's like, nah, he's just, um, he's trying to get money. He's not, yeah. his daughter is not actually sick. Fair enough, I guess. Yeah. I mean, like, look, you kind of figure, do I need a hundred dollars? Mm. No. But I was like, I can't really, I can't, oh, if you ask me for a hundred dollars and you need a hundred dollars, then that's something. But if you say that someone's sick to get that, that's when it's kind of crossing a line a little bit. I'm always conflicted when I'm asked for money, when, you know, by beggars and street kids and, you know, when traveling in Southeast Asia or elsewhere, because you kind of want to help them. But then you were told not to because you know they'll expect it or and you know to give to a charity instead who's doing the work but then people say things about charities that are you know sort of skimming far too much off the top for the you know it's always difficult to know what to do so I often look for something like in Cambodia you know they've got like restaurants that have kitchens run by street kids that you know actually are on the ground doing that sort of work and you know try and look for those sort of things rather than just you know sort of handing over money but it is very conflicting isn't it because we have so much compared to people who have so little yeah absolutely it's um you know it's a sort of moral quandary of being human that confronted with so much poverty and inequality in the world what do you do but if you reduce yourself down and give everything last thing away you haven't really even made a dent into the sort of poverty so then you have to balance questions about moral duty with personal happiness uh, it, it's I, I don't have the answers to it uh, it's really difficult yeah as with I think many travelers when you're confronted with it in the flesh it's very difficult to figure out what the best way forward is it is indeed uh, what other adventures do I need to ask you about we had quite a fun adventure that was was a little bit more light-hearted where we went but went to a place called uh, Mangastau uh, again in Kazakhstan this time in the very far west and we set out to see as much of it as we could see within a week and this is quite a remote area um, again it's the area that I was saying looks a bit like Monument Valley and we just drove for like I think we covered like 1500 kilometers just driving around like it's all like salt lakes and stuff as well so you know like when they used to do their speed runs and like um, really flat salt lakes so just driving around like just seeing the entire thing as much as possible sort of off-road etc that was really good fun several years earlier myself and Matt Traver went to uh, Mongolia and we lived with uh, eagle hunters for a month so these are the these sort of traditional hunters that have huge golden eagles and then they they use that to catch prey and we did this sort of smaller horseback journey over the course of two weeks this horseback journey along the sort of Chinese border 
met all these people, saw them hunt, uh, live with them again, see so how they live with their, their lives. That was really, really interesting. There was an adventure within that that was four days long where we just sat on a bus for four days to get from Olgi to the... Olgi is the town in the far west to Ulaanbaatar and it took four days to get on a bus. Was it more exciting than sitting by the river for seven days? It was more painful, I'll tell you that. It was like cramped, not only stopping for toilet breaks for, yeah, the span of... Yeah, it was... Probably it was probably marginally more exciting than the other one, and we also the other the, the other trip that we did in Mongolia was we pack rafted down a river. Pack raft is an inflatable raft that you can fold away into pack into a backpack. It was on the onset of winter, so it was going down to about minus twenty at night, and we were in in the river, and there was ice flow in there as well, and. Every time you lifted the paddle out of the water, the, the droplets would hit your, your suit and they would instantly freeze. So you kind of peppered. Wow. It was That's so cold. cold. Yeah, so I, yeah, it just, I couldn't feel my toes for about, oh, my big, I couldn't feel my big toe on my right foot for about two years afterwards. Seriously? Yeah. Or you were lucky you didn't lose it? I don't think it was ever in any danger of frostbite, but I think it was just kind of a little bit of nerve damage from just constant immersion. When you're sitting there on this floating raft and things are freezing all around you, do you ever wonder like, why the hell am I doing this? Or do you know if you've got a mission? I think what drove me when I was younger, it was a sort of need to live a not ordinary life and need to be special combined with a slightly nihilistic, well, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Let's just push my body and experience the most that I can possibly experience. I've worked on that attitude because that doesn't make you happy. Even if you accomplish what you need to accomplish, you still feel, as I was saying before, you still don't feel like you really did it and there are other things that you could have done better and there are bigger places that you could have go and you're never really satisfied. So as I've grown into my expeditioning, I've realised the role that it plays in my life. And that is that I do like it because it does make me slightly different. It gives me stories to tell. It gives me access to really impressive places and experiences and the experience of pushing yourself and feeling that fatigue and knowing that you can come through that gives you this sort of agency and control that you you know that you 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 have a control over your life but i've learned to pair that with a more social world where i can hold down a job and i can have a wife and i can have a nice life and you know hopefully have kids soon and just have it in the place that it is and so that means now that i do less trips i i hope to do one maybe next year what are you going to do there's Sounds really boring, but Kazakhstan again. Because <laughs> this that, river you want to go and stare at for a few days. Yeah, well, yeah, just go sit down for a while, chill out. Sounds quite relaxing. Yeah. No, there's one last desert, one last main desert called the Rin Desert. It's in the northwest of the territory. It's quite big, just for completion's sake. I can tick off all the deserts. <laughs> there's that in the Aral. The Aral Sea is now a desert, so I guess I could do that as well. But That's a bit disturbing. It was a sea and now it's a desert. Is that a recent thing? Yeah, well, the Aral Sea is like uh, one of the world's worst ecological disasters. It oh, was, I've heard about yeah, this, yeah. They diverted the rivers um, 
there's two, the Amodara and the Suryodara, I think. Um, I might be pronouncing that wrong. The Soviet Union uh, misdirected the rivers yeah. to water the cotton crops in Uzbekistan, and then the river, uh, then the sea collapsed. It's now quite a toxic sea. And You'd there's, have... there's photos, aren't there, of like sort of boats? Yeah, the, the boats. Yeah, yeah, that's it. People do visit it nowadays. They go into it. The outskirts are definitely a tourist attraction. Attraction's too strong a word. Mm -hmm. It's places that people it's do frequent. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, but there is a crossing that could be done of that as well in some form but it's a little bit more you kind of have to wear like a mask or something <laughs> i don't know how does your wife feel about this oh she would hate it um does she just want to she's like come on can we not just go to like greece and like yeah that's actually where we're going this summer oh, well, my, go. my wife loves she she she's not like that at all she's we're definitely uh, kind of about going to like nice bars and restaurants and sort of going to the, well, you know we went to the south of france for holiday that's that's the sort of places that we like and coming to be like well actually i quite like this too you know i don't mind these sort of things i like experiencing some of the finer things and i don't have to be you know not have you know not wash for two months <laughs> or, or or sort of living out in you know like a caravan or something like however you want to live your life you can live your life I think, and, and that's with what... travel as well you know there's no point being snobby about travel i love going to like a cheesy bar on on the costa del sol you know to going somewhere wild and and fabulous you can do all of it yeah yeah there's no um there's many different ways that people kind of look down on different things people look down on it for being like yeah you know you've gone to ibiza or something and people in ibiza can look down and go well why would you go to some grotty outback <laughs> like everybody does that or everybody has a different way of what they enjoy and i think that's what's really great about adventure travel is that people do really enjoy things and they really get a lot of sort of satisfaction from it mm. it's just when it's just the sort of i guess the the moderation too much of anything can make you a bit squiffy so absolutely it sounds like you've managed to get that balance where you know the one that levison wood was actually you know we had a bit of a laugh about him looking for a wife but the one that he was looking for you know is to get that balance between adventure and having a life for yourself and not being that isolated person sitting by that river but be able to do that and be able to take part in normal life as well yeah and that there's so the compromise that i've made on that is that my expeditionary trips are now i wouldn't go away for more than two weeks so i have to think of a format that would work to get to somewhere remote so that you can experience something unique and enjoy it and really get to grips with it but in a shorter format mm. which is where the running came from what so, about somewhere like the like you know some of the most remote parts of the state so there's a lot to explore there in north america and south america do you mm. feel like branching out from Kazakhstan in that area of the world. My wife's Brazilian, so going to South America properly would be quite interesting. I never really had that much. I, I guess I was quite snobby that I was like, I'm the Central Asia person. I'm going to focus on Central Asia. And there's still a few places that I really want to go to. Like Turkmenistan, for instance, I've not been to yet. Alaska, I would love to go down. I'd love to do those sort of river rafting trips and just float down remote territories and go, kind of go to that sort of endless woodland beautiful places and there's so many places i mean you just throw a pin at the map and every anywhere is has got something great to it it's just figuring out what sort of what order you want to do them in absolutely well my last question is always about music because i always think that music and travel go hand in hand and i don't know if you have a chance to listen to music when you're doing your your runs or any of your adventures but if you had to choose one song that reminded you of a special memorable time or place of travel what would that song be oh that's a very good question i know i like it uh, yeah that's well done i don't listen to music when i'm running i would say 
to really sort of sum up the essence of how I was feeling on those runs at that time, or those sort of expeditions, I would say Run by Daughter, which is a little bit bleak, but it's quite a beautiful song. And I still, when I'm like, right, I have to do something, I'm in the mood, I've, you know, I've got a work deadline, I'm gonna crush this, I'm unstoppable, you know, nothing can stop me except for myself. That's the song that I put on to play and listen to. Reminds me of the sort of control that we all have as human beings over our actions and also the responsibility that comes with it. And Jamie stars in the short film All That's There, which is showing at the Four Seasons Film Festival in London. Go to fourseasonsfilmfestival.com for more information.